The following podcast is sponsored by Financial Sense Wealth Management. To learn more about our investment services, go to financialsense.com or give us a call at 888-486-3939. This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News Team. Major indexes finished out the week on a plus side as low inflation numbers for the month of June and robust bank earnings helped to fuel a rally in the markets this week. On a positive note, the rally is starting to broaden as industrials, telecommunications stocks, and consumer discretionary join technology by heading higher. Over 80% of the stocks within the S&P 500 are now above their 50-day moving average. The CPI print came in at 3% for last month, and that is helping to fuel beliefs that the Fed may be one and done after this month's Fed funds rate hike. Hi everyone, I'm Jim Poplava and welcome to the Financial Sense News Hour. Coming up, Ari Wald from Oppenheimer joins me. Ari is bullish on the market and favors technology, industrials, and financial service stocks. Later on in the program, Dan Steffens from Energy Prospectus joins me as we discuss why we feel oil prices are going to be heading much higher in the second half of this year. And finally, Chris Sheridan and I will discuss the topic of why we are bullish on commodities and the major megatrend of this decade that will dominate investment returns. But first, let's find out the stories moving this week's markets with Ryan Poplava. Stocks took a big leap this week following key economic announcements for inflation, unemployment claims, and consumer sentiment. The consensus is building that the Fed could raise interest rates one last time in July and then pause stemming the possibility of a policy misstep and avoiding a hard recession. We still have an earnings season around the corner, and comments from an FOMC voter on Friday suggest investors may yet be getting ahead of themselves. So let's get into it. Stocks took a small step back on Monday and Tuesday, despite several brokerage calls that upgraded J.P. Morgan Chase, American Express, and 3M. Stocks that haven't kept up with the S&P 500, with 3M underperforming the S&P 500 by 25% year-to-date. But things took a big turn on Wednesday when the consumer price figures for June saw the smallest 12-month increase in core and total CPI since March of 2021 at just 0.2%. Year over year, the headline index was up 3% compared to 4.8% previously. And inside the components, goods grew 1.3% versus last year, but the services component remained sticky, up 6.2%, but down from the previous month of May where it previously was at 6.6%. The biggest improvement came from used vehicle prices, which fell half a percent in June from the previous growth of 4.4% in the preceding two months and may have been a result of a slowdown in auto production earlier in the year. Investors' mentality has shifted since the CPI report as expectations for further rate hikes after this month's meeting dropped. The two-year yield, which is sensitive to Fed expectations, fell 16 basis points to 4.73%. As a result, the dollar fell 1.1% to 100.62, and many countertrend investments like Bitcoin, gold, and other commodities rose on the prospects the Fed may be done. Thursday's two-year note yield fell even harder after the producer price index complemented the CPI report by only increasing 0.1% month-to-month, with the annual rate up just 0.1%. And the core without food and energy was up 2.4%, showing that wholesale inflation pressures are cooling. Coupled with the ease in unemployment claims, which fell 12,000 to 237,000 claims, 
Yields fell yet again, with the two-year dropping another 12 basis points to 4.61%. Finally, Friday's announcement from the University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index, which rose to 72.6 from 64 in the preliminary reading for this July as consumers sensed the rise in the stock market, stable labor market, and cooling inflation expectations. The announcement on Friday initially led to a rally in stocks, but profit-taking took hold on an otherwise strong showing. It could also have been attributed to one Fed Governor Waller, an FOMC voter who said he sees no reason why the Fed should not raise rates in July and that two more rate hikes later in the year were likely based on his analysis. The two-year yield finished down 32 basis points for the week to 4.73%, while the 10-year note yield finished at 3.82%. Both had otherwise risen considerably last week on the strong NDP jobs report, again down this week on consumer price information. By the end of the week, all 11 sectors were up with discretionary communications and tech in the lead up 3.3, 3.2, and 2.8% respectively. Underperforming came from energy, consumer staples, and financials, which were up 0.8, 1.1, and 2% respectively. Despite the good results from J.P. Morgan and others, the S&P Bank ETF KBE was down 1.9% Friday, and the regional bank ETF KRE was also down 1.9%, possibly because there is still some reserved sentiment over the smaller banks to report next week. I expect these two areas to be big highlights based on results from earnings next week and a focal point for investors. Despite the mediocre showing from defensive sectors, Friday's United Health reaction to earnings helped the sector finish Friday strong and held the Dow in positive territory. It's clear from the previous two weeks that rates have been driving stock performance and those have been influenced by the economic results thus far. However, in front of us will be a few important weeks of earnings as bellwether companies report and provide guidance. As of Friday, FactSet is reporting that the current estimates for the S&P 500 are for an earnings decline of 7.1% in the second quarter, up from previous estimates as companies have started reporting and have been beating estimates. It's likely that number will continue to close the gap as it's common practice for Wall Street to underestimate its performance with analysts. The key will be listening into the guidance for the third quarter and for the rest of the year. Stock market and consumer sentiment has lifted as of late, and it will be important to clue in if it has done so also for management. FactSet's current estimates for the S&P 500 are for earnings growth of 0.1% in Q3 and 7.6% in Q4 for the big rebound. Are those numbers too small or too high? We'll know more over the next few weeks. That wraps up this week with disinflation cooling bond yields, which have caused just about everything to rise this week with stocks, bonds, and commodities minus the dollar which has fallen on the expectations the Fed may be one and done here in July, while Fed's Waller thinks there's still more to do. Up next, guest technician Ari Wald. Well, you know, over the past year, I've basically been saying that we actually are in a recession. It just happens to be a rolling recession hitting different industries at different times. Now I think we're in a rolling uh, recovery. The housing market seems to have bottomed. I'm expecting that uh, some of the weakness in the good sector will be reversed and that we'll start to see some better growth in retail sales. Consumers seem to be in pretty good shape now. Wages are rising faster than prices. Meanwhile, price inflation has come down quite a bit. Uh, June's CPI inflation rate was surprisingly good. And uh, as a result of that, uh, we're probably pretty close to the Fed being done. As a matter of fact, they're going to meet in a couple of weeks in July. 
and I expect it'll be one and done. For investors, there's still plenty of opportunities in the market. Uh, financials have lagged behind. One of the reasons the mega cap eight did so well this year is because when we had that banking crisis in March, everybody uh, kind of jumped out of the financials and decided to go into the mega cap eight. But I think the financials are going to do relatively well. And I think industrials should do very well. We're seeing a a lot of spending going into infrastructure and a lot of spending going into onshoring of manufacturing. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button. Hi, I'm Jim Paplava. I started Financial Sense in 1985 to give clients a boutique, personal investment experience that's hard to get at a large company. For three decades, my company has been helping families build, manage, and protect their wealth through tailored financial planning and investment management. If you are looking to make financial sense of a complex world, give our office a call at 888 to speak with one of our advisors today and let us help you plan your future. Well, it's been a fairly good week for the stock market as we're seeing more sectors break out. Is this a broadening market trend? Let's find out. Joining us on the program is Ari Wald from Oppenheimer. Ari, up until recently, you had the S&P and the NASDAQ sort of leading the market. And within the S&P, you had, you know, what is it, 10 stocks. What I'm seeing now is a broadening trend. You got industrials breaking out. You have some other sectors breaking out. Materials are starting to rise. Energy is picking up. What's your take here? That's right. You almost have to ask, what isn't working? And and that's such a a key bullish piece of evidence here. It's the broadening of this market. The areas that had been limiting participation are now uh, emerging higher and providing this untapped firepower uh, for the next leg of the upcycle. And for these reasons, we do think there's additional upside for the market. In January, we were targeting a move to 4,600 for the S&P 500. We're getting close to that point. You know, we see this as fair value based on, you know, where the index should be at this stage of the cycle. But we do think the market is still undervalued based on where it it should ultimately top. Now, along with the broadening of participation, if you look back historically, how these bull market cycles unfold, the S&P now is up 28% over a nine-month period since the October low. Looking back historically, specifically looking at the up cycles coming out of a non-recessionary bear, par for the course would be a 50 to 60% rise over a 15 to 18-month period. So this is why we think the market's conservatively undervalued and without any warnings otherwise, we continue to follow this bull market roadmap. Ari, is this unusual in the sense that if this is a new bull market, it is taking place in the midst of a Fed rate raising cycle where I think the probabilities are over 90% for another quarter point hike this month? Do you find that unusual or have you seen that in the past? Yeah, I wouldn't call it unusual. How we see this has actually been very textbook, uh, just as, as far as how the market has behaved in regards to how it's behaved around Fed policy, you know, tighter Fed policy generally represents a late cycle backdrop, not an end of the cycle backdrop. So this really wasn't a big worry for us, and it still isn't a big worry for us. We are considering this up cycle in the context of a late cycle economy, but historically, we've seen this before. You know, last year it was the market being pressured 
by the threat of runaway inflation. Entire policy was the medicine that helped wring this virus from the system. So as we said in the third quarter of last year, you know, volatility that gets triggered by Fed hikes is volatility that historically should be bought. We've, we've shown studies of this before. Now, while this has triggered the deepest and longest inversion of the yield curve since 1980, historically, it's actually been a Fed cut following an inversion that's occurred closer to a market top as central banks scramble to catch up to an obvious deterioration in economic activity. And we don't think we're at that point. Uh, and we don't expect the, the Fed to be in a rush to cut rates either, because this is what catalyzed the second resurgence of inflation in the late 1970s. They want to avoid that analog. Uh, so instead, we think the market should be able to rally higher against this not too hot, not too cold backdrop. So given this fact, you know, one of the reasons they said we haven't had a recession is uh, trillions of dollars of new spending. And the other thing that interest rates have been less effective in terms of slowing the economy. All right, I can't think of any corporation or individual that hasn't refinanced their debt, whether homeowners refinancing their mortgages in the 2 to 3% range or corporations refinancing debt. So a lot of that took place because we had almost zero interest rates for a full decade. Yes, the low rates was a rhetoric for why we had this big, large secular run-up in the market. Uh, and it surely did provide a tailwind for those reasons, as, as you mentioned. If you were to really look back historically, while rates have risen, uh, that isn't really the end of an equity cycle or an end of a regime uh, uh, of a longer term bull market regime. In fact, through the 90s and 50s and 60s, you had rising rates uh, against uh, a very uh, favorable backdrop for the equity market and rewarding backdrop. Uh, so for us, it's really not low or rising rates. It's stable rates that has historically coincided with strong runups in the equity market. And that's what we have right here. The rates have stabilized. We kind of said this year was going to be a year of, of consolidation for, for interest rates. And uh, again, that's that's the backdrop we have. And in fact, at this point, we'd be more concerned with rates taking a very sharp move to the downside. That would suggest that there's the threat of recession is coming back to the, the market. You know, how we see it, this general uh, higher drift to, to rates as it stands uh, is more indicative of improving economic conditions. Yeah, because recently we had the 10 and the 30-year go over 4%. We even had the five-year note over 5 They pulled back since then. What is your take on where you think interest rates are heading, given the fact that we'll probably see another quarter point hike this month? We think they're going to remain range-bound. You know, uh, last year, there was a significant breakout in interest rates. If you look at a 40-year chart of the 10-year U.S. Treasury, you'll, you'll, you'll see it had reversed what was a 40-year a decline. But that doesn't mean it's going to be an unrelenting move to the upside. And I think we're at a point where uh, that rates are now leveling off. Finding a range between, let's say, 3% on the downside, you know, 4 plus percent on the upside. Uh, and again, I think that range-bound behavior is going, going to coincide with a, an additional run-up in the equity market. So as you look at the uh, S&P, the 10 sectors within it, technology obviously has been a leader since the beginning of the year. 
But we're now starting to see things like materials, energy breakout, industrials are doing very well. As you look at within the S&P, what are your favorite sectors here? What looks good to you on the charts? Well, large cap growth is should remain a core position for us. And that's going to include uh, a lot of the technology sector. And we note there's been rotation even within the technology sector. You know, what was leadership driven by innovation and software as a service and internet is now very uh, AI fueled move to the upside with semiconductors being the main driver of that leadership. But it goes beyond technology. In fact, industrials is also one of our favorite sector ideas, given the given the broadness of the strength in that sector. It's the infrastructure stocks, it's capital goods, it's even some of the the, the metals and mining stocks that are you know moving to the lower left to the upper right uh, of the chart across the board. Uh, that is a theme we want our clients to participate in. Along with that, there are pockets of the consumer discretionary and financial sector as well that we like, that screen favorably for us. So it's generally a recommendation for offense over defense and continuing to participate in this bull market environment. You know, one of the things you mentioned in industrials, but one thing that we're seeing not only here, but in Europe, it's called reshoring. We spent 30 to 40 years offshoring. Now we're bringing things back, whether it's building chip factories or manufacturing, that's coming back. That's got to bode well for industrials, number one. And number two, as we make this green transition, Ari, what are your thoughts about companies that can help build the energy infrastructure, the grid? There's a particular ETF that we've been talking about that might fit some of those ideas. It's the Global X U.S. Infrastructure Development ETF. It's ticker P-A-V-E, PAVE. And it's an ETF that's already out to a new cycle high. Consider the market hasn't done that yet. So that's a very notable indication of relative strength. It's, it's a ETF that recently broke higher above peak levels from 2021, two years ago. It had been in this two-year range, now breaking to the upside and across the board as well, thinking about the individual constituents that make up this ETF. And that's what we look for. That's the charts telling the story when it's not just driven by one or two names, when you have one stock after another, after another, really across capitalizations as we think about the strength in the mid and small cap uh, part of the benchmark as well, breaking out to the upside. That gives us conviction that that type of strength can continue. I want to move on to the commodity sector. We're seeing gold and silver pick up and oil as we speak. What are your take on commodities here, especially precious metals and oil? Well, for the most part, a lot of the intermarket trends, whether um, we discuss fixed income and it goes along with, with currencies uh, and commodities as well, uh, we see range-bound behavior. Again, not too hot, not too cold. I think the more recent drop in the U.S. dollar is indicating that commodity prices are finding the lower end of their range. And I think a lot of this this tradable upside that we've seen in recent days could have some legs to it. Uh, I want to, again, be conscious that that could be part of an ongoing range in that commodity space. Uh, But their select exposure is warranted uh, for us. We're especially upbeat on more of the industrial metals rather than the precious metals uh, and metals in mining. 
uh, some of those names that are part of that infrastructure play really screening well for us um, that with showed relative strength on market slides and maintaining that leadership on the market upside too. That's where we want to be, again, stressing the more offensive over defensive uh, nature of this market. Okay, let's move on next to international. Here too, this makes us bullish for the market, that it's not just the U.S. You're seeing it in Europe. You're seeing it in Japan. You're seeing it selectively in EM, some of these areas that are, are starting to turn higher here. And this gets into the discussion between growth versus value. We're going to think about world equities as the value component. And there has been a very big divide between growth and value through the years. What we've argued, though, is that it hasn't been driven by outsized returns in growth. In fact, we've argued that the steadiness of of growth in the NASDAQ 100 is actually underappreciated, especially when you look at the long-term rate of change numbers between now and the late 1990s. It's really an apples and oranges comparison. Instead, that divide has been driven by how poorly value has done through this, where you have the European stock 600 within a secular bear market pinned below its year 2000 peak, but that is now starting to change. Europe is now breaking through 20-year resistance. And so our long-term view that this could possibly just be the middle innings of an ongoing secular bull market is, well, what if Europe is finally breaking through 20-year resistance? What if energy is now an investable sector again? And what if these value areas can now keep pace with this ongoing secular rise on the growth side of the spectrum? Now, on a relative basis, we still prefer growth for the long term. I think the relative ratios still favor that, but at least selectively, uh, parts of value, parts of world equities do look like they should uh, participate in this up move. So in summing, uh, if you were to put money, your favorite sectors once again for investors? So we're recommending our clients to increase exposure to equities. We're especially bullish on technology and industrials, given the broadness of strength. And we're also positive on pockets uh, of the consumer discretionary and financial sector. Uh, For new money ideas, along with moving down the capitalization ladder and growth land, we also recently upgraded the financial services industry group to overweight, again, given a broadening list of stocks that are reversing last year's decline. All right. Well, listen, Ari, as we close, if our listeners would like to follow the work that you guys do at Oppenheimer, how could they do so? Well, they can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Ari Wald. All right. Thanks for coming on the program. You have yourself a great rest of the summer and come back and talk again. At Financial Sense Wealth Management, we are committed to helping you build, maintain, and preserve your wealth. Contact us today to find out about our comprehensive financial planning and asset management services. Whether you're planning for retirement, taxes, putting together an estate plan, or need assistance in managing a 401k, Financial Sense Wealth Management is here to help. Give us a call to speak with one of our certified financial planners or wealth advisors at 888-486-3939. Or go to financialsense.com and hit where it says, Contact Us. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. 
Well, just when you thought oil prices were falling, they're starting to rise again. How high will they go and will they go higher? Let's find out. Joining me on the program is Dan Steffens from Energy Prospectus. You know, Dan, I want to talk about a key point here. In the oil markets, I know MBS was upset with the oil traders. They were shorting the market. And the thesis was the U.S. economy was heading into recession. Secondly, China's economic growth was weaker than expected. And what they weren't seeing with this is a lot of our shale plays are starting to peak. More importantly, even though China's economy wasn't growing as fast as it could, they were importing record amounts of oil because China was getting cheap oil at a discount from the Russians, and they were turning around, refining it into diesel fuel and making the money on the spread, selling it to Asian countries. Yeah, I know. You know, these sanctions against Russia have got to be the biggest financial boom for China and India. <laughs> the two largest you know, populated countries in the world are now able to buy really cheap oil from Russia, and we're not doing anything to try to stop that from happening. So Russia is getting less oil revenues, and I think we're just at the beginning of starting to see Russian exports actually go on decline. I think their exports have stayed high because they've been draining their above ground inventories to export it because they needed those revenues. But I think with you know the oil service companies pulling out of Russia and stuff, I think their fields are going to have problems maintaining production. And the other issue that nobody's really following, one of the biggest booms to economic growth has been U.S. shale. I mean, it accounts for almost 90% of increase in global production. You've got the Eagle Fork and the Bakken in decline. And there are many like Rosenzweig that are saying that the Permian is probably a year or two away from hitting a peak. And when that happens, the shale play is over. The Permian Basin is the only large basin probably in the world that still has upside, onshore basin that still has a lot of upside. There's one that I get uh, information on down in Argentina, but you know, in Argentina, you don't have the infrastructure to really ramp that up quickly. But our Williston Basin, which is home to the Bakken, that's on decline. Eagleford's on decline. I just saw the last Friday's active rig count down. Six more rigs drawn for oil were dropped, probably all in the Permian Basin. What's happened on the rig count, I mean, people focus on the rig count. The rigs are being dropped by private companies. See, the private companies, they don't have the financial ability to carry a lot of acreage inventory. You know, they can't have, you know, $100 million in sitting there in uh, inventory. So they've used up their tier one acreage. So they've dropped a lot of rigs. The public companies, now they're under tremendous pressure to just hold, pay dividends, buy back their stock, and they're not raising their drilling. Not this year. I think if, you know, if oil goes at 90 or 100 by the end of the year, I think they will increase their drilling activity. And that's another issue. In fact, it's being brought up in Congress today about ESG restraints that are being placed on the energy industry by this woke crowd. And they want to direct traffic towards, let's say, green. But as you sent me a story prior to the broadcast, it's not working. In Puerto Rico, they're going back to oil and uh, natural gas. Yeah, I saw that uh, Sweden has dropped their goals. And they, now they say they want to do nukes, but what they're really going to have to do is get, bring on either coal-fired or gas-fired power plants if they're going to you know, stop spending all this money on wind and solar. Because you know, if you wanted to build a new nuclear power plant tomorrow, it'd probably be eight or 10 years before it actually be up and running. So, But anyway, I'm just calling this whole thing the big paradigm shift. The energy transition is not going to happen as fast as they think. We've been, over the last 10 years, we spent $5 trillion 
on renewable energy and it hasn't lowered demand for fossil fuels at all. I mean, it's they're still going up. Maybe coal demand's going up a little slower than it should be. But I mean, we don't burn oil to make electricity and wind and solar make electricity. So we're still going to need a lot of uh, new oil fields to be found and developed. And, you know, all this ESG stuff just stands in the way. And we need to get some common sense coming out of Washington. I don't expect that to happen anytime soon. But around the world, you're start seeing some of these European countries got a big wake-up call with the situation with Russia, but they just can't rely on these wind and solar projects anymore. Now, in my own state of California, I just got my first EV because I expect gasoline prices to go from to 8 and $10 in the next 12 months. Because if we see oil go back up to $90 or even 100 and Raymond James is calling for $120, we'll be at $10 gasoline. I mean, when it was at 110 in 2022, they were paying over $8 for gasoline in Los Angeles. And then on top of that, we shut down one nuke plan. The other one's going to get shut down at the end of the decade. We've shut down gas and coal. And, you know, we've been warned about more brownouts. In fact, last summer, this was hilarious. The governor's pushing EVs because gasoline engines will be forbidden by 2035. But during the power outs and during the heat wave, you were told not to charge your EV from nine in the morning to night at night. So how's that going to work if we're going to go to, let's say, Biden administration wants 50% of all cars made in the US to be EVs by 2030? How's that going to work without a grid? Yeah, I don't see it happening. I just don't think the power grid could handle this anyway. I mean, if you just overnight change, you know, 50% of the cars to EVs, and they all are charging at night, I think it'd burn up the power grid. <laughs> I just don't see it happening. So yeah, the the age of cheap oil is over. That was in the Raymond James report that I sent you. And it's not just Raymond James. You know, Marshall Atkins has been very bullish on oil prices. He even admits that he was a little early on his call for this year being 100. But I think their forecast for the second half of the year is looking very solid. They're not the only ones. Rystad Energy, uh, your listeners, but they may not have heard of them, but they're a very highly respected research firm with data coming in from all over the world. And they, in a report put out like about six weeks ago, actually, middle of the first part of June, said that today, uh, back in June, the demand for oil-based products exceeds supply by 2 million barrels a day. So we are going to see in above-ground petroleum inventories a steady decline in the second half. If that happens, OECD inventories, that's the U.S., you know, the uh, Organization Economic Development and Cooperation countries, it looks like they could be going down to 25 days of supply by the fourth quarter. And OECD inventories have never been that low on days of supply. And no one really knows what's going to happen. But yeah, that relationship is pretty strong. If it wasn't for fear of recession, which in my opinion is the only thing that's keeping oil prices in the 70s, I think we'd be at $90 oil right now. But you know, it's tough to change people's minds. They think that the shale oil revolution is going to keep ramping up production forever, and it's just not going to happen. Yeah, I mean, the EIA has uh, shale production expanding to the year 2040. I, I just, you know, I don't know where they get that data when you have most of the big shale plays outside the Permian are already in decline. Dan, I'm looking at my Bloomberg screen. U.S. distillate diesel below, way below five-year average. Gasoline stocks, way below five-year average. And something that Marshall Atkins does at Raymond James, which I like, he takes the inventory and puts it into days of supply, which is more useful because we're using more oil today. In fact, I think it was 
I'm trying to think who I was talking to recently. They were talking about looking at oil use. It actually went up last year, went up over 3%, which is huge globally. And I think we were up like almost 400,000 barrels a day. You had India, up, Bangladesh, all these countries are consuming more oil. So you have the IEA is coming out and saying, oh, we're going to hit peak demand. But Dan, I don't see any evidence of whatsoever. And you know, you look globally for that. And then Dan, tell me what country has fully electrified their economy and it's working. I don't see it anywhere. Yeah, none. It's not going to happen. You know, this world runs on oil and it really runs on diesel. I just found out this morning that the U.S. refiners have increased our exports of diesel to Europe, you know, because they were relying heavily on refined products coming in from Russia, especially diesel. So we're backing them up. And as you mentioned, I think our diesel inventory is about 14% below normal for this time of the year. And I tell you, I we drove back and forth uh, to Louisiana last week and it was like every other vehicle on Highway 10 was an 18-wheeler, and they're not running on electricity. Uh, They're running on diesel. So this country needs a steady, our economy depends on a steady, reliable supply of transportation fuels, and especially the commercial economy definitely relies on diesel. You know, the other issue, this is a big one. This is as a result of the Ukraine war. And what you're seeing now is China with its Belt and Road Initiative. They are striking up deals with the Gulf states where they're going to deal in oil and Chinese yuan. They're also encumbering oil. So China is making a major $400 billion investment in Saudi Arabia. In return, they're going to encumber several million barrels of oil a day from Saudi Arabia. Well, what that means for the rest of the world That means that's several million barrels of oil that have been taken off the global oil markets and are no longer available for Western countries to buy. Yeah. And, you know, people ask me about, you know, oh, isn't Saudi Arabia cutting production because they think there's a surplus of supply? I think what's happened to Saudi Arabia, they have depleted their storage of inventory around the world because, you know, people need to think of Aramco as just a great big, you know, as a country and an oil company at the same time. But the reason they have so many customers wanting their oils because they're reliable. If they say they're going to deliver oil to you, they deliver it to you. So they want to build up their oil reserves around the world so that they can meet the demands of their customers when they see the big spike in demand that's coming ahead. And they also want higher prices. They think Brent's too cheap. They want Brent in the mid-80s, and they can definitely get it there. It is going to take a while. It takes a couple months before the Saudi Arabian production cuts will be seen in our inventory, but we still do. We import some oil from Saudi Arabia, maybe half a million a day uh, we do, but you know that could go down and it's probably going to go down to Europe and Asia too. So it, we're going to see a much tighter market here in a couple months, really much tighter market. So given the fact that it's expected that the Permian's probably going to peak here in the next two years, Dan, I was reading out of the 55 oil exporting countries, 46 of them have already passed their peak of five years. So that leaves about nine countries left, which the U.S. is one of them. Where's the excess oil going to come from to meet economic growth? I don't, I don't see it. You, like in that report I said to Raymond James, they, they forecast that we're going to need like 20 to 25 million barrels a day more by the year 2050. I have no idea where that's going to come. I don't even know where the additional two or three million barrels a day is going to come from for 2024. If the Permian Basin peaks, and 
even if it doesn't peak, it's not going up fast enough to offset the decline in the Wilson Basin and in South Texas Eagleford, the other two large basins. There's a little bit of upside in the DJ Basin in Colorado. There's some upside in central Oklahoma that scoop stack play is kind of coming on again as they figure out better ways to complete the wells. But other than that, I just don't see with, we now have, I don't know, 100,000 horizontal shale wells that are on steady decline. You just can't drill enough new wells to offset the decline of all the old wells. It's a mathematical problem and it happens to every oil field. Every oil field ever discovered, once you drill out more than 50% of the tier one acreage, you cannot maintain production and they peak for a few years and then they roll over. It's happened to every oil field ever discovered. Given this, Dan, and the great thing that I like about this, nobody sees this. So the oil stocks have been hit hard. They've gone through a correction after being probably the best performing sector for two years. And I think they'll outperform this year as we get into the latter half of the year. You know, the PE ratios, the dividend yields, the cash flows, the stock buybacks, it has never been more opportunistic for investors, in my opinion. Yeah. You know, the problem when oil went over 100 and everybody thought that these oil companies needed that level to be profitable, they're very profitable at $70 oil. Their operating expenses are maybe 20 to 25, including everything, operating expenses, transportation processing, even income taxes and interest expense, G&A. You add all that up, all their cash expenses, and they only come to every company I follow, it's less than $25 a barrel. So, you know, let's say oil went to 50. They're still cash flow positive. They It may take longer for those wells to pay out because these shale wells are expensive wells. But at 70, you know, the company, the big companies that really know what they're doing, like EOG and stuff, that they're staying, saying that they can generate like 50% rate of return on 10,000 more wells that they have left to be drilled in inventory at $50 oil. So, you know, it's a false paradigm that they can't make money. I looked the other day and the upstream companies, the upstream oil and gas companies have the highest free cash flow yield of any other sector by a wide margin. Some of the other sectors trading on the uh, you know, S&P 500 or something, they have maybe 2 or 3% free cash flow yield and the upstream oil and gas companies are like 8 or 9% free cash flow yield. And that's at 6, you know, $70 oil. Well, what happens if it does go to 80 or 90? They're just going to go crazy with free cash flow in the second half of the year. You know, when you look at this, I mean, even you take some of these big companies like Exxon generated like almost $60 billion of free cash flow last year. With oil prices down, they're still going to generate like 36, 37 billion. I mean, the amount of money yeah, it's that these companies are making and these companies are selling at six and seven times earnings. I mean, it's just absolutely blows my mind that nobody is paying attention. Yeah. You know, what gets me is like, you know, for, I worked for Hess for 18 years and, you know, this is way back, but if we had you know, a quarter where we made, you know, uh, 400 million or something for the quarter, we were happy. I've got a list of companies that are, that are considered small caps. They're considered small cap companies that are going to be generating well over a billion dollars of revenue this year. And they're profitable and they're growing production and they've paid off a ton of debt. Their balance sheets are in great shape, but they're still considered small caps. <laughs> it's amazing to me, really. It's, a, it's an industry with very, very big numbers. Absolutely. So Dan, as we close here, what would you be doing as an investor? And especially, let's say, if you've been chasing tech stocks, you're looking for a new place or an entry point. 
What would you be doing here? Well, I think uh, some of these larger companies that pay really good dividends and they do, they have so much cleaned up their balance sheet, like Pioneer and Devon, uh, Diamondback, their balance sheets are now pristine and they're committed to paying dividends. They can live within cash flow. And more than anything, they have a lot of running room, a lot of inventory left to be drilled. So they do have upside as individual companies. And what I've seen in the last year or so is more and more of the companies that I follow are buying out private companies. So, you know, they're in much M&A between like Exxon buying Pioneer or something. I haven't seen that. That rumor's been going around and maybe they will do it, but it's been these companies that are buying up these private companies to get inventory. And I think there's a lot of upside in some of the ones I follow. But as you said, these companies are trading at significant discount to historical multiples. Again, back when I was at Hess, if we could find a company that we could buy that, you know, for six times operating cash flow that had pretty good inventory, that would be good. My sweet 16, which is these are top quality, you know, profitable companies, all going to be profitable, you know, first quarter, great returns. And they're trading for like three and a half times cash flow. It's crazy. So when the big paradigm shift occurs and we find out that, you know, the transition of wind and solar is not going to happen as fast as we thought and we're going to need oil for much longer time, then we could get multiple expansion. And that's where the big gains come in uh, stock prices. So I think we're headed to a very nice second half of this year. You know, my screen for the la- all this week's been green. So if that keeps going, they got a long way to go to get up to my fair value estimates. Well, super. Well, listen, Dan, as we close, how could our listeners follow your work at Energy Prospectus. You really put out some good stuff and you also have your own podcast. Yeah, I do weekly podcasts on market updates. So that's one of the features. But the real tool that we do, we prepare Excel spreadsheet forecasts that are macro driven. So it's a good tool to use in your due diligence to look at any company. We follow about 40 companies, mainly upstream, some midstream, some minerals companies, and from time to time, you know, we look at some metals companies or something else that looks interesting in the energy sector. They can contact me. Just send a email to energyprospectus at gmail.com and tell Sabrina, those go to Sabrina Jones. She handles our member services. Tell her that you heard about us on your show and she'll give you a code for a $100 discount. It's normally $350 a year to be a member. Uh, that'll get $100 off the first year. And we have picked up quite a few members from your show. So just send an email to energyprospectus at gmail.com. All right, Dan, all the best and have a great rest of the summer. That concludes our weekend edition of the Financial Sense News Hour. To speak with our financial planning and wealth management team, give us a call at 888-486-3939 or go to financialsense.com and click where it says contact us. If you aren't already a subscriber to our weekday podcast and would like to listen to more of our content where we regularly interview book authors, industry experts, and strategists from around the globe, go to Financial Sense and hit the subscribe button. On behalf of Financial Sense NewsHour and the Financial Sense Wealth Management Team, we hope you have a pleasant weekend. Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any company. 
companies mentioned in financial sense or arising out of the use of any material on the news hour. Be advised that you invest at your own risk.